Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Could mythical sea monsters actually be based on real creatures? Does New England have its own lake monster? Who or what is Ogopogo? Hello and welcome to the 867th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Uh, coming to you live from WOON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the uh, Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on TuneIn.com. Uh, I'm Ben, and those somewhat slimy questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today uh, we bring you a living legend. Uh, and if you'd like to uh, be a part of the show or you'd like to ask any questions, you can give us a call at 401-766-1240. That's from anywhere. You can email Paul at com. Or you can email, or you can shoot us a message via Facebook Messenger or any other social media that we happen to be upon. Nick Redfern works full time as an author, lecturer, and journalist. He's written a lot more books than we have, and he even wrote the foreword for my latest one. Our subject today: Nick's most recent book, Monsters of the Deep, published in August. In addition, Nick is all over radio and television, including current and past shows such as History Channel's Monster Quest and UFO Hunters. VH1's Legend Hunters, National Geographic Channel's The Truth About UFOs and Paranatural, and BBC's Out of This World, etc., etc., etc. Nick is a native of England, but lives near Dallas, Texas. Nick Redford, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Hey, guys. Well, thanks for having me on again. Oh, it's always, it's always good. We always look forward to shows with you. Um, <laughs> so, um, Monsters of the Deep, do they really exist, and are we talking rerun dinosaurs here, or what? Well, I, I guess the book, you know, the book's kind of uh, written in a sort of an encyclopedic um, fashion. So it, it covers everything from going way back, you know, like um, Jonah and the Whale through to the Kraken, uh, Loch Ness Monster, and the, the similar creatures to the Loch Ness Monster around the world, and, um, and reports from uh, sailors, 1700s, 1800s, in the Atlantic and Pacific, so it really sort of covers um, just about every angle, and um, and I mean most people who have reported these things, you know, have gone on the record, and that includes you know the captains of ships. So um, from my perspective, at least, you know, we are talking about real creatures, but for the most part, unknown in terms of what they actually are. Okay. Now, uh, let's get into some uh, specifics here in your book. Uh, Cheever Felch, who was, who was that? And, and we're talking about the Gloucester, New England Sea Serpent. Now, we've done whole shows on that with Jeremy Robinson, who wrote a book about it. And uh, what's your perspective on that one? Well, I mean, this is an interesting angle, you know, when you look at the, the story itself. And, um, you know, we, we're talking about, I guess, what you would call, you know, sort of a, a United States equivalent of the Loch Ness Monster. And um, you can actually find a lot of these equivalents um, all over the place, really. But um, the story itself, um, well, I'll, I'll just go sort of uh, give you sort of a rundown on it. Yes, please. Um, and it, it all revolves around um, New England, uh, New York, and off the coastlines um, of the United States and uh, Massachusetts and... Um, Sightings were being made um, the sort of latter part of the 19th century in various locations, and 
And, and it was sort of like an eerie period, you know, because you had these sort of um, uh, cases that come in, you know, to the fore. Now, one of the um, witnesses was a guy named Obadiah Turner, and um, he talked about seeing this um, strange creature that was, I'm quoting here now, 15 fathoms more in length and um, other reports as well um, as you mentioned earlier Chiba Felch um, now he had a sighting um, when he was aboard a US schooner called the Science and he said of this uh, particular creature and again I'll uh, quote for you his colour is dark brown with white under his throat his size we could not accurately ascertain but his head is about three feet in circumference flat and much smaller than his body we did not see his tail but from the end of the head to the farthest protuberance uh, was not far from 100 feet I speak with a degree of certainty being much accustomed to measure and estimate distances and length so in other words what we've got is a very credible case from, a, yeah, from an intriguing and credible source and where there was multiple um, different um, eyewitnesses. And, and for me, it's sort of one of those classic cases, really. Well, it's interesting that um, we understand that um, they were, it was once seen on land. And uh, there were, uh, I, I, my, my understanding was that there was a, 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 one of the Europeans and, and two of the natives were, were going by in a boat and happened to see it curled up on the rocks, very rocky coast out there and uh being a good uh early american the guy tried to shoot it so um you know is so how are we looking with that well you know it's interesting because um there are a lot of cases um in relation to lake monsters where they've been seen briefly on the land um a friend of mine um in this particular field as well uh, actually wrote a book on the on the Loch Ness Monster, but from the perspective of um, the land um, cases. And, you know, that demonstrates, you know, how many land reports have been um, filed of lake monsters um, around in and around Loch Ness and at other uh, Scottish locks as well. Um, you know, when you can write, someone can write an entire book on just the land cases, you know, that demonstrates as to how often these creatures actually are seen out of um, you know out of the water yeah. and this kind of suggests you know um, well if they're coming you know onto land then they're probably not fish you know yes um, and that's sort of one of the intriguing aspects is you know what kind of animal could briefly come on the land but spend um, you know most of the time on the water and uh, and it's intriguing as well you know a lot of these land cases you know mirror um cases around the world like i said with loch ness and then you know you've got um the united states and it kind of suggests that these creatures whatever they are you know they they're actually being seen and reported all around the world you know because the, the similarities are, are clearly there yeah we have a report from because uh, there are a lot of people in new england here where we are who are interested in champ uh, the lake champlain monster and uh as a matter of fact, I remember Ben, uh, we, we have a family in Vermont, so we'd go up to Burlington uh, when Ben was, was little, and he was always into lake monsters. He's out of the, out of the booth right now so I can talk about him. Uh, he, we would sit, uh, there was a restaurant that had a, a, a 
floating dock where you could have your meals. And he would sit there and he would stare out at the lake the whole time. I don't think he'd eat anything. He was uh, so interested. I mean, he was going to come up and shake his hand, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, but the Loch Ness, I should say the uh, Lake Champlain monster, uh, there were also reports of it being seen, seen on the land uh, here and there, uh, particularly in the 19th century. So it is very interesting. I'd like to get a, get a copy of the book about these land cases. So, uh, Nick, what about... Well, yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say the, the author's Roland Watson. Roland and, Watson. Um, yeah, if you just Google or go to Amazon, Roland Watson, you'll see Roland's done several books on the Loch Ness monster. Yeah, I've heard the me, name. Yeah, but for me, the, the you know the land case one is the most intriguing because it's sort of an angle that most people, even a lot of people in cryptozoology, don't know. You know about yeah. the, uh, the land cases. Absolutely. Okay, now what about the, uh, I, I can say this because I, I know a little bit of Swahili, the, the Mokalium Bembe of the Congo. Mm. Uh, that's sort of almost a, a dinosaur rerun of some kind. It's not particularly a lake monster, but is seen generally on four legs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there's a reason why I mentioned that in the book, because technically it's not, you know, like a, a lake monster per se, and it's certainly not a, a sea serpent. However, Michaelium and Bembe, which kind of looks like a scaled-down Brontosaurus, um, most of the reports that have been filed have said that for the almost all of the time the, these creatures do live or sort of spend their time in the water. Now, we're sort of talking about, you know, bathing and, and finding ways to, to keep cool, that kind of situation. But um, but most of the witnesses do say, you know, that they kind of just sort of lurk in the water as opposed to, um, you know, sort of swim deep in the water, you know. Um, but I felt that it was important, you know, if you're going to cover just about every kind of mysterious beast that um, could be perceived as water-based, you know, I think Michaeli and Bemby you know, is one that sort of fits the category. Now, what's intriguing about the stories of uh, Michaeli and Bambi in the Congo is that most of the native people in the area and people who visited and interviewed eyewitnesses have all said one thing that's sort of pretty much the same, and that is that these animals are extremely violent, kind of like mm. the equivalent of a of a hippopotamus, you know, which are equally uh, dangerous and uh, uh, angry most of the time, you know, if they're disturbed. Um, so, again, I think this is an intriguing story because we have all these little aspects, you know, surrounding the story. And it would not surprise me, um, you know, if the these creatures are real. Now, a friend of mine, Richard Freeman, who was a former zookeeper oh, we know uh, Richard, in England, yeah. He's What's great. That? What's that? No, I said, we know Richard. He's great. Oh, cool. Great. Yeah, you're uh, yeah, a good guy. And um, Richard uh, sort of speculated on the possibility, and I think it's a strong possibility, that we could be talking about huge monitor lizards. Um, you know, people think of, like, uh, the closest I can think of is, like, the... Um, <coughs> Excuse me. You know, if you've got sort of a large uh, monitor lizard and um, like something... A moto dragon kind about of thing. 20, 25 feet in length, you know, you probably wouldn't quibble that that's a monster, you know. Yeah. 
And uh, but on top of that as well, you know, it's easy. You know, if you were to have a number of these large monitor lizards, you know, sort of hiding out in the marshes, in the in the lakes, but technically not actually being a lake monster, you know, it adds a sort of another aspect to the story. Okay. I want to get to some listener questions, but um, you are a, sort of a globe-trotting fellow, and we've had a lot of interesting conversations with you about uh, things you've seen in Puerto Rico, uh, d- different parts of the world, this sort of thing. Have you um, been on the trail of, of, of any of these uh, lake or sea creatures, and have you seen anything yourself? Well, I haven't actually seen anything myself, unfortunately, but um, I guess... What really got me into it was when I was about five or six, my parents took me to Scotland for a week's vacation and um, we spent a day at Loch Ness and my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster and that's, um, I mean, I certainly wasn't doing research like some little precocious kid running around, you know, <laughs> but, um, but when I was about sort of seven or eight um, and following on from that first trip to Loch Ness, you know, it, it really caught my imagination and attention and I started to read you know about the subjects and um, you know made various trips to uh, Loch Ness as I got older Um, but certainly in the United States um, you know where there's a a lot more reports yeah I've done a lot of investigations uh, over here and um, a lot of people don't realize that um, there's a number of stories actually from Texas where I live I live just outside of Dallas and um, I can go from we- uh, west from here to a place called uh, Lake Granbury. And uh, Lake Granbury has its own um, legend um, of a lake monster, and it's known as One-Eye. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and now some people, you know, view this as, as just a legend, you know, a folkloric story, that kind of thing. However, I've spoken to... I think it's it's either four or five people, which isn't that many, but the important thing is that nearly all the witnesses described something very, very similar, and what they did describe was not like a giant plesiosaur or anything like that, but it was actually like a giant eel. Now, that, to me, sounds, you know, quite plausible, the idea, um, you know, of a a large um, eel, perhaps grown to massive size, and um, and it's been perceived, if you like, as a monster or an unknown animal. But, you know, if you're talking about an eel, maybe the length of sort of 20 feet, 25 feet, and the body, you know, like the, the width of like um, a barrel, you know, you probably wouldn't quibble, that's a monster. <laughs> and, um, so I think, you know, some of these cases involve, that I've investigated, involve... Um, unknown animals but whereas the one with at Lake Granbury uh, one eye I would not be at all surprised if that was not a giant eel or a, or a colony of giant eels well it's funny when I was uh, going to school up near the St. Lawrence River uh, I had a little boat and I'd go out fishing there would be muscalunge which are related to sturgeon I believe these things were un- they were longer than my boat and you'd see this <laughs> unfortunately they, w- they were uh, rather docile you know unless you caught them and uh, but I avoided that. I tried to stick mainly with bass. But uh, these things were absolutely huge. So let's uh, get to um, listener question here uh, from our. Uh, I think Nick has heard of our faithful listener in Bogota, Colombia, Peter. And Peter has sent in a few questions for Nick. Sure thing. Uh, Peter writes to us. 
Uh, please ask Nick to share his understanding of the Alistair Crowley connection to Loch Ness. Secondly, uh, what is the story of the frog people also mentioned in his book? Okay. Well, yeah, the the whole issue of Alistair Crowley is an interesting one because this sort of takes the whole lake monster uh, issue down a, uh, down a different pathway. And we're sort of talking about the the idea that some of these lake monsters could have sort of a supernatural aspect attached to them. Now, most cryptozoologists don't go down that pathway of, uh, of the supernatural or the paranormal. You know, they view them all as either unknown animals or creatures assumed to become extinct but are still, you know, still around. However particularly in and around the Loch Ness area, there have been a lot of really weird things over the years. Um, now, one of the classic examples is the fact that Alistair Crowley, the famous occultist and magician, actually had a house uh, overlooking Loch Ness called Boleskine House. And we're talking about um, in the latter part of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. And he performed all sorts of rites and rituals and um, in the area. And there was a witch coven in the area as well. And the, the, the whole area is sort of shrouded in uh, issues relative to uh, magic. Um, kind of moving on from Crowley, in 1969, a well-known um, Nessie researcher named Ted Holliday um, he and a, and a couple of American tourists who were actually in Loch Ness at the time, um, they stumbled on this um, this large sort of uh, patchwork um, tapestry. And when more and more research was done, it was actually shown that um, that one of the pictures on the tapestry showed um, an ancient sea goddess named, uh, named Tiamat. And she was like this dangerous creature that would pull you down into the depths. And there were rumours of um, sort of a, like a sacrificial cult in the area um, that was performing all sorts of bizarre rituals. And there have been UFO sightings over Loch Ness. Um, Ted Holliday, who I just mentioned, in 1973, um, he had an encounter with nothing less than a, a man in black on the shores of Loch Ness. So in other words... There's this, you know, you can make a case, certainly around Loch Ness, that um, there's a huge amount of occult history, paranormal history, supernatural, supernatural history, all around that area, and all tied up with witch covens, with Alistair Crowley. And one of the theories is that Crowley helped, if you like, to... Um, increase the sightings of the Nessies by essentially kind of um, bringing them forth, so to speak. <laughs> well, there you have it. Now, uh, what about the frog people? Well, again, this is a very strange story. Um, particularly in, in the mid-1950s, and particularly also in Ohio, there was a wave of sightings in various areas um, where people were seeing what became known as frog people and uh, it kind of sounds like something out of like H.P. Lovecraft you know or something like that but it's actually not far away uh, what people were reporting were sort of four to five feet tall 
creatures. We're not talking about, you know, the, the so-called reptilians of today, you know, like these giant um, sort of menacing lizard people, nothing like that. But they were sort of four to five feet tall with this sort of greyish, um, light green tinge, large eyes, and these very sort of blubbery uh, lips. And on several occasions, they were seen late at night um, in one area being Springfield and um, running across the road. One of the reports was actually seen um, by a police officer sort of uh, just sitting by, squatting by the road, and then it just charged off. And all the witnesses essentially said the same thing. It was sort of like an upright reptile-type creature. And um, and like so many of these weird stories that we get, that we all get, you know, it, the this wave suddenly, you know, went away as quickly as it a- arrived in the first place. Hmm. Well, it provides enough um, for tourism uh, fairs and things like that, <laughs> yeah. you know. But uh, no, not, not to say it didn't happen. But so uh, we have uh, something else here from. Um, oh, the, the, go ahead, Ben. Uh, from Peter. The, the oh, of course. Yes, 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 yes. The questions never stop uh, here on Behind the Paranormal. Uh, <laughs> lastly, as a kid, I absolutely loved a series of stories in DC Comics that, depic- that depicted World War II soldiers encountering various prehistoric monsters in the Pacific, only as a fantasy. Or, Nick, have you discovered any real reports of this? Oh, from the war, you mean? Uh, I, I suppose that's that's the question. <laughs> Um, well, no, I'm actually not, I mean, I'm not, wouldn't be surprised if there weren't reports, but I guess, uh, for me, I, I don't think I've got any, you know, specifically from the Second World War, um, but I think the primary reason for that would be because, you know, everybody was focusing on the war, I suppose, so. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I must say that Peter sent three illustrations of covers from these comic books, and I love the one where there are a bunch of dinosaurs hitting the beach from a, <laughs> uh, a landing, uh, amphibious landing craft, and their American and Japanese soldier, I guess, have gotten together out of necessity and are trying to fight the dinosaurs. I mean, hey, you know. I don't uh, think anything like that actually happened, but I love the landing well, craft bit. Well, you never know. I mean, no, you, you know, don't. who knows what was what was encountered, you know, during warfare. I mean, I guess for the most part, if something like that was actually seen by military personnel, you know, they'd have to sort of just focus on what they were doing, you know, trying to stay alive. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me, you know. I mean, it's just that it was such a very turmoil-filled era that... Um, it would be very difficult, I think, you know, to sort of chronicle all of the reports that, we, you know, when you, you're on the battlefield or whatever. Well, I think there's something sort of fascinating about about and, and mysterious about our uh, our bodies of water throughout the Earth. And I think if there's, if there's any more sort of case that, that I, I can think of that's more illustrative of, you know, sea monsters being real, it's the discovery of Architeuthis, the the giant squid. And it, it's it's one of those things where, you know, biologists completely denied its existence until someone just, you know, I think it was, might have been a Japanese fishing vessel that actually got, you know, footage of it. And you know, this was, you know, what probably twenty years ago now, maybe maybe a little maybe a little more recent than that, mm. of of you know this this creature being found. And the more we kind of discover Earth's oceans, and the more that we explore it the more weird things we're finding with it, which doesn't kind of push any of this out of the realm 
of possibility because w- what's the old saying? It's not even old. We know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our o- our own oceans. And there are points in which we haven't been able to explore, like you know, fully, including the Marianas Trench and many other portions of sort of under underwater topography. Yeah. Because it's you know you can you can only do so much with the technology you have, and it it kind of brings to mind something I'll bring up after the break because we're kind of coming up to it. And if anybody remembers the uh, the do- the docu fiction thing that came out a few years ago on uh, the Discovery Channel. I think it was called Mermaids: The Body Found, like back in 2012. But everyone thought it was a real documentary about mermaids, but it actually it, it was just you know just you know, it was a piece of fiction. <laughs> well, there were reports. It was done really well, though. <laughs> it was it was yeah. done really well. They even made a website for it that that yep. supposedly got taken down. It was by the Australian the, the South African government or something. <laughs> Well, you don't mess with the South African government. No. It's our um, middle, uh, we'll take our middle of the show break here, and you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our amazing guest, Nick Redfern. We'll be right back. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal here on WOON Radio. And we're talking with our great guest, Nick Redfern, and uh, about his uh, many, many books, but certainly his his latest book, Monsters of the Deep. Mm. Just before we get back to that, I remember uh, I was in Argentia, Newfoundland, in the line of duty many, many years ago before you were born. And uh, I remember stories uh, that they would tell of, uh, particularly period up until about 1920, when Architeuthis would come up to the surface and literally grab people out of boats in uh, the the area between uh, Newfoundland Island and Labrador. Mm. You know, particularly f- you know people who were fishing. I don't know, maybe he was trying to defend his fellow fish or something. But uh, anyway, it was, um, I heard <laughs> those stories. Kraken. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Nick, we have a uh, another um, question here, and this is from Lauren in Connecticut. Okie dokie. And Lauren writes to us. Uh, does Nick have any reports uh, from military or fishermen or other boaters uh, of sightings of monsters or unusual creatures in 2020? In 2020, um, no, I haven't got any that's sort of you know really right up to date. Um, well, the closest I can think of is actually the, the, the quite astonishing number of reports of the Loch Ness monsters that, that there's been um, this year. Um, sonar reports, photographs, footage, and we really haven't had anything like this for a long, long time. I mean, typically, people might find this surprising, but usually there's only about three or four good cases, sightings per year. You know, it's not much, and considering how many people go there every year, you know, they're thousands. So most people don't see anything. But for whatever reason, this year has been sort of an amazing um, year. And, and if you Google um, Loch Ness Monster Sonar, you'll see the latest story about um, whether the, the captain of a ship um, recorded um, 
the the movements of something round about the length of about 30 feet deep mm. inside Loch Ness. And, and this was all recorded on sonar. But that, that's about the closest I can think of uh, for anything that's sort of, you know, really up to date. Mm. There's, okay. a, there's a second part of the question, which is actually pretty good and probably one thing we were going to hop into at some point, uh, but might as well... You know, engine, engines are uh, roaring. So what are Nick's thoughts regarding these creatures being unknown ones, uh, but normal from the deepest oceans, versus creatures that might be from other dimensions uh, or other worlds? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good point. Because I'll tell you for why. Because, you know, everybody who's sort of looking into these cases and sightings are sort of, you know, trying to apply the the real, the reality behind uh, surrounding it, you know, that it, that it all relates to either animals that we think have become extinct or, you know, that they, they're just normal animals grown to large sizes. Um, but I think a good case could be made that at least some of these creatures could actually be, getting back to the question, they could be, you know, totally unknown. You know, that the possibility that we've never found and identified some of these creatures. Um, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all with the Loch Ness Monster. You know, if they are flesh and blood and not supernatural, um, I think, you know, a very good, strong case could be made that if we find one, we're going to be like, wow, you know, we've actually found something that no one has ever seen before. And so I think that's a possibility. And as for the other part about, you know, sort of multi-dimensional issues, well, again, that has popped up in a number of um, Loch Ness cases. Um, for example, um, Jim Mars, the late Jim Mars, who was more of a sort of a conspiracy theorist than, um, than anything else, um, Jim um, interviewed for one of his books uh, a team that used to work for the CIA uh, in remote viewing and for whatever reason at one point the CIA actually remote viewed Loch Ness and the several remote viewers that were um, looking into this said that every time they tried to remote view the Loch Ness monsters they would see it briefly swimming in the water and then it would literally be gone as if it was just sort of, you know, with a click of a finger, it was in a, in a different realm of existence. So that actually does kind of, you know, that absolutely parallels, you know, the, the question. And um, so maybe, you know, maybe there is sort of, in a very strange fashion, maybe there is sort of like a flesh and blood angle to it, but also some kind of multidimensional aspect to it as well. Well, I mean, you'd think the logic would be at this point, you know, all the research and time and effort that's been poured into it, something would be found, right? I mean, there were there were a few sort of red herrings here and there, but it's it's you know, so much research has been done, and you know, little to nothing has been found. Maybe like a piece of controversial, like you know, footage or or something caught on a sonar. But, you know, I know there's, a, I, from what I remember of, of the Loch Ness Monster, sort of, or, well, Loch Ness in general, is that there's a huge underwater cave network. But at the same time, right, you know, some, something would be found, it's, it, whatever it may be, right? It, it, it just doesn't make sense if it's a flesh-and-blood creature that sort of just hangs around in the water that you wouldn't see it, especially if there's so much attention on it. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of look at it two ways. You know, you can look at it like that, and then you've got the the other angle that, you know, if the Loch Ness Monsters, because there are so 
uh, few reports every year, you know, chances are they are, you know, some kind of fish, um, something along those lines. Because mm. if they were like a crocodile, a reptile, they'd, they'd be surfacing all the time, you know, like about every 20 minutes for oxygen. And we'd be seeing them all the time, and we're not, you know. So, um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons, and this one often gets sort of overlooked, I guess, one of the reasons why I think, you know, we haven't got the hard evidence just comes down to the logistics of funding. Mm. You know, for example, you know, most of us in the field of monster hunting, cryptozoology, you know, we don't have the, the money to hire a mini submarine, you know, for, to go under Loch Ness for a month or something, you know, we'd, we'd all be bankrupt, probably collectively bankrupt, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I think there's that angle. And there's also the fact that um, something else that a lot of people may not know is that Loch Ness, um, it's, well, it's roughly round about um, 22 miles long, a mile wide, and about 750 feet deep. But when you go into the water at Loch Ness, you only have to go down, you know, sort of 10, 15 feet, and the water is literally black. Mm, and the reason is because um, all around Loch Ness, it's surrounded by these huge sloping hills and the the dirt there is extremely black and so and because it rains a lot over the centuries all of this black soil has been pushed into the lock and that's why you can barely see anything in Loch Ness that's why some of the underwater pictures are so fuzzy and also why you know we haven't been able to to, to find much because you know it really is kind of just like sort of like going through dishwater, really. <laughs> mm, well, true. it's ironic that um, I, I think perhaps a Lauren's point for mentioning 2020 might have something to do with the fact that this year has been so bizarre that I don't think any of us would be surprised if the alligators came up out of the sewers and started directing traffic. Mm. So, uh, speaking of which, uh, there was uh, Terry, Teddy or Ter Teddy May, I guess, Commissioner of Sewers in New York City, was talking about alligators. Can you get into a little bit of that? Oh, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's an interesting story. You know, we, um, everybody sort of heard, you know, the legends, if you like, of alligators um, in the sewers, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, I mean, they really have become sort of part of, I guess, American folklore and history, you know. Um, now, a lot of people would say there is no actual history to this. But Teddy May, uh, in the 1930s, when he was running... The, um, the sewers, um, or overseeing them, I should say, in New York and, and actually um, in elsewhere in the areas as well. Um, they actually, on one occasion, they really did capture a small alligator. Now, this isn't sort of legend or friend of a friend story. This is actually true. And now, it wasn't like some, um, you know, sort of 15-foot man-eater or anything like that. It was, I think, around about three to four feet length total and um and it was captured and that's how the story began now almost certainly it was probably somebody's um pet it got too big and they didn't want to kill it they didn't want to you know whatever and so they just put it in the in the sewers and uh, and that's how it began now what i think probably has happened is that the 
impetus at the beginning was this story, which was a kind of a minor story, but it was interesting as well. You know, you see the headline, Alligator in New York. Everybody's going to see that and, and read it. However, you know, I think what's happened is that the this actually quite small story has sort of um, spilled over into an incredible legend which it actually still is around now. You know, everybody knows sto the stories, um, but it's not as exciting as, you know, it, it potentially could have been. Well, you know, it's funny. When I was a kid, uh, it was a big deal if you went to Florida. And uh, when you, it was like the late 50s, early 60s, and you had a friend who had uh, ceramic flamingos on metal legs standing in their yard in their garden or something. You'd say, oh, wow, they've been to Florida. That was kind of a symbol, and it was a big deal. Now everybody goes to Florida. But <clears throat> it was, uh, sometimes people would bring back baby alligators. It was pretty dumb in my opinion, but so, you know, what do you do when they grow up? And, to uh, the sewers with them. Yeah, and people would flush them down the toilet when they start. And it, that's when I first heard the alligator in the sewer thing. I said, "Wow, I wonder if uh, that might be the origin of some of that, and it might not be true." Well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised um, if that didn't happen. That kind of thing didn't happen all the time. I mean, kind of ironically, um, about a year or so after I um, emigrated uh, to the United States, uh, this would have been two thousand and one. There was a sighting of a strange creature in a, a place called Roman, uh, Roman View Lake, which is just about 15 minutes drive from where I actually used to live. And people were seeing this strange thing in the water. And there was a story that uh, one of the local ducks got pulled into the water, but I don't know if that is true or not. Um, but it turned out that um, when people were drawing pictures of it, um, it was almost certainly... Um, a snapping turtle and and again it was probably um you know a pet uh, but it again it kind of developed the mythology of a of a lake monster when it was really a small pond uh, with a snapping turtle in it but <laughs> people are fascinated by these things and um and i wanted to sort of stress to people you know that we're not always talking about giant monsters sometimes you know the way our minds work we love mysteries and um a story of a small pond, you know, with a snapping turtle can mm. very quickly become the local version of Nessie, you know, when it's not actually not at all. <laughs> well, it's funny. A few years ago, uh, I would always, until they opened the, uh, th this will be of interest to the local audience, uh, until they opened the uh, <clears throat> the bike trail and, and walking trail in Blackstone um, up to Millville, Mass., which is beautiful, I would always walk down in Lincoln, Rhode Island, uh, by the Blackstone River. And the Blackstone is uh, an old river. It's obviously natural, certainly, and it's uh, but it's full of dams uh, from the old mills. And I was walking down there one day. Nobody else was around, but I, I did manage to get pictures of this. There was a huge stirring in the water, and uh, this head came up. I couldn't believe it, and I, I got a picture of it. And uh, I sent the pictures to, uh, and of course it looked at me w with this venomous, and then it disappeared. <clears throat> and I sent, Rhode Island is very small. We all know each other. So I know the, the head of the Department of Environmental Management. And uh, I sent her the, the, the photographs of this along with, the, with their chief biologist. And we had a lot of fun going back and forth about what this was. And the biologist thought, well, it could very well be uh, a very, very large snapping turtle. But I was thinking more uh, uh, python 
which have been running rampant in the east, eastern United States uh, for a, a number of years now when people would release them when they were pets. Mm. And they love water, and I'm wondering if it wasn't that sort of thing. So do you think um, uh, the, the black, I, I started to call it Blackie, the Blackstone River Monster, <laughs> could either be a gigantic snapping turtle or more, even more likely, from what I saw, a python from the shape of the head? Oh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, you see something like that, then, and it looks kind of weird and not the sort of thing you see, you know, every day. It's easily, you know, sort of where it suddenly becomes a monster, you know, and, and all these sort of connotations that go along with the word monster. Um, so, yeah, I mean, particularly, I mean, huge snakes, you know, you see them sort of wriggling along in the waters. You could easily see why somebody could say, well, that was like a lake monster. In any yeah. one sense, it would be, I guess, you know. Because here it would survive the winter. Well, that's right. I mean, we get occasionally reports from in, in the UK of snakes uh, being found, you know, at the edge of a canal, um, dead, and it's sort of like November or December, you know, which is tough enough for people to survive in England, you know, in, yeah. in, know. in December when it's that cold. But, and, but for, you know, the pythons, I mean, they stand... No chance. So there have been a few cases like this. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, some cases can be demystified. Um, one that I, that I often get reports of, I would say, well, I say often, I would say three or four reports a year uh, in Texas where people have seen what they thought were unknown animals in the rivers, and particularly in the Trinity River in Texas. Um, but when they described it, it was clear what they were talking about was an ancient and quite rare fish known as the alligator gar, mm. uh, which looks kind of like something from the, uh, you know, the prehistoric era. If you look at a picture of an alligator gar, there's a reason why it's called that, because it, it's not an alligator, but it actually, actually looks quite like one. And as I said, it's very ancient, very rare. Most people don't see them. But when you do, it's like, wow, we saw a monster. So, um, yeah, I think alligator gars, you know, pythons, um, you know, when you've got a large uh, snapping turtle or even a, like a large regular turtle as well, you know, the stories of giant turtles, um, you know, like the size of a car. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So um, I think we can put all of these categories, uh, all of these sightings, I should say, into one category if you want to. You know, you could place them all in sort of water monsters which they are but when you look into it you know there's an incredible body of different uh, angles you know you can go with these stories yeah no, it's, that's 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 fairly accurate there was um i, I used to be a, a very large fan of the of the uh, television program river monsters uh, oh, host, yeah. and it was a fascinating fascinating show um and i remember oh, there was good one that was yeah, it was really good. Um, Jeremy, Jeremy Wade was was the was the guy on it. It was, it was it was really fascinating. And there was one particular episode that stuck out, which was um, he uh, Jeremy Wade went on a little uh, little trip to Chernobyl specifically to to fish in the the runoff canals of Reactor Four. Was that? Was I that think it was three. Three Reactor yeah. Three. I don't know. I should I should know this. Um, and the fascinating thing was he caught a giant catfish. Um, but the the thing was, for its age, it was actually a lot smaller than it should have been, <laughs> which is which is the interesting thing. You know, you hear radiation and all of this. You know, that'll make things bigger. In fact, it's the opposite. I guess it actually stunted 
um, some of the cell growth and ended up giving it a form of cancer. <laughs> so it's growing in some ways, but not in others. And this kind of leads into the question of how many of the of these reports could effectively be modern mutants, you know, altered by by pollution and, and things like that. Well, I actually have a, an entire story about, or an entire chapter in the book about that. Um, now, Richard Freeman, who we mentioned earlier, uh, former zookeeper, Richard has an interesting theory for at least some lake monsters, and he uh, is of the opinion or the theory that possibly, you know, when you've got pollution in lakes and things like this, um, it may actually affect. Um, you know the the sterility or provoke sterility um, in the in particularly in eels. And Richard has noted that um, you know eels, uh, you know that they migrate. That's the one thing everybody knows what eels do. You mm. know, the Sagrasso Sea and back again. And um, and Richard has found that that where there's been high pollutants, um, where there's also been eel-like. Uh, monsters, particularly in, in the UK, um, it's where there's a great deal of this pollution, of pollution as well. Mm. And so we may be looking at a situation where we're actually creating our own monsters. Now, one of the one particularly fascinating story that I, I was given directly from the eyewitness um, relates to the sighting um, near a lake in Minnesota just a few years ago. And the witness claimed it was like a, a large frog. And I said, well, you know, how large are you talking about? And it was like like the size of like a German shepherd. Now, um, wow. you can either take it one way or the other. There's no real, you know, um, uh, you know, in between. If you see something that's like a, a frog, the, you know, a German, the size of a German shepherd, you cannot, you know, sort of explain it other than that, or it was a hoax. You know, there's, there's no way to go down, you know, any other pathway. However, what's intriguing is that the um, U.S. government's U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS, in 1995 got very concerned. This, this is a, a legitimate story. Got very concerned because frogs in Minnesota... And actually, in one of the lakes uh, where this report came from as well, um, started to be uh, born with um, with mutations. Like, for example, they would have like an extra limb or an extra eye. And uh, in one case, um, the frog had developed two more legs and they were sort of fully functioning. And the, the frog was quite happy, you know, to have two more legs. Uh, and But again... This was due to pollutants getting into the um, the Minnesota rivers and, and lakes. And if you and again, if you Google uh, Minnesota frogs pollution, you'll find the U.S. government's entire report um, on how and why these frogs started to mutate in Minnesota. So for that reason, you know, the fact that this guy saw um, this frog the size of a German shepherd when you when you put that next to the U.S. government's uh, report, it really actually does make me think, wow, you know, perhaps this really was the real deal. I've heard that uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, by way of human waste getting, have also uh, 
created a sort of a unique kind of pollution in the environment and are affecting uh, wildlife in that way, particularly water creatures. Well, it kind of makes you wonder, right? Like, you know, if this is just one isolated case, you know, one lake somewhere, you know, w- yeah. what about anywhere else? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. And uh, and as I said, you know, the the interesting scenario is that some of our monsters today are of our own creation. And yeah. that sort of begs the question, well, what else could be potentially mutated by our activities and mm. uh well maybe that's what we're not now what we're actually starting to see yeah well nick uh tell us about uh some more about the book uh your other books if this time and your website where people can find out more uh, um well i have a, a blog uh which is world of whatever so just look for nick redfern world of whatever you'll see my blog um the new book uh, monsters of the deep um, you can get it off Amazon, and you can also get it off the shelves in Barnes & Noble as well, for people who still like to go into bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I'm working on uh, another book right now. And Well, actually, I've got one com- which is out right now. It's called The Martians. It's a study of um, all oh. the strange, weird anomalies that have been found on the surface of Mars. Mm. And then um, earlier next year... Um, I'll have another book out, and it'll be um, sort of an A to Z of time travel. Wow. And uh, people can uh, also reach me at Facebook and uh, Twitter, Nick Redfern, UFO. Excellent. Well, we're going to have you back on the show soon. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think we have time for one little brief question. The bunyip. Uh, when I was in Australia in 79, that came up in a, in a conversation with, a, with an Aboriginal elder, uh, but we were talking about other things, but it's a, but that was mentioned. Uh, what is that about the bunyip? <laughs> well, this is a, this is like a really strange story. Um, you know, the the bunyip is um, like a really strange looking animal. It had sort of the characteristics of a bird, of an alligator. It supposedly had a head that resembled an emu with a long bill, and um, and on each side of its body were these sort of serrated edges kind of like the bone on, on a stingray. And um, its hind legs were sort of thick and strong, and the forelegs um, were, were sort of smaller. Um, and it was almost like what you would call like a chimera, you know, sort of a, a collection of all different weird creatures put into one. But, um, I mean, it's a fascinating story. Um, I don't take the literal story literally, but it would not surprise me, you know, given the locations and, you know, Australia has a lot of uh, marshy areas. You know, it's not it's a lot of people think, you know, just desert, etc. You know, um, there's a lot of uh, marshes and lagoons, things like this, forests. So I wouldn't be surprised if something prompted the story of um, the Bunyip itself. However, you know, the the sheer number of different animals that seem to be tied into it. I find that unlikely. But, you know, you often find where there's a legend and a folkloric story, there usually is some sort of genuine original story that that prompts to, you know, to kick it all off in the first place. Absolutely. Everything in folklore started with some kind of experience in the the human uh, human past. So there you go. Nick Redfern, uh, wonderful show as always. Uh, I can see a few more uh, shows coming up because of your uh, your great new books, and mm. we'll be talking to you soon. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Okay, very good. Nick Redfern. Have a good one. Le- living legend.
All right. So, go ahead, Ben. Well, we will we will begin with the outro announcements. Uh, many thanks to the Blackstone Mass uh, Public Library, which hosted us for a program on poltergeists this past week, and to the Museum of Working Culture here in Woonsocket, which hosted my dad last evening, for a program on our local cases. Actually, the uh, technical issues last night were scarier than anything I could have said. I mean, uh, technology but, can be scary sometimes. No, but Sarah Carr, assistant director of the museum, she pulled it together and we we got it done. So it was a, what's a great the, what's program. The, same, the ghost in the machine. Yes, exactly. Well, it was a fundraiser for the museum, which I, I can't imagine was easy to do on Zoom, but I guess it was. They pulled it off. It was great. So anyway, with any uh, luck, COVID restrictions allowing, we plan to speak at the New England Parafest on April 10th and 11th of 2021 in Kittery, Maine. And we will do a live broadcast of this show with a panel of the speakers on Sunday the 11th. More information will be forthcoming. So uh, by all means, uh, check out our books uh, along with those of our other co-hosts at our uh, show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find more about the show our many cases over the years our public appearances and how to book us along with some of our eight actually close to 900 uh free recorded shows from our 13 or 12 plus years on the year including our four and a half year run on cbs radio along with special shows and podcasts and past shows back to late 2009 are also available on major podcast platforms, including YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, the Paranormal Radio app, and more. And soon, we plan to have all shows back to 2008 uploaded to those apps. Yeah, it's a, quite a the undertaking, as you can imagine. Also, uh, we're getting a lot of inquiries where people can see uh, the documentary we were in recently on the Travel Channel, The uh, Devil's Road, The True Story of Edelin Rain Warren. Uh, that can be seen as, I, I guess, there's, it was so successful... One of the producers told us that it it was the most, had the highest ratings and viewership of any show ever shown on the Travel Channel. So that's pretty good for the Travel Channel, I guess. Mm. Uh, 1.5 million or something. So um, anyway, uh, you can see that on the, there's a Travel Channel app where you can see it, and I believe they're still airing it, so just check your local schedules. Uh, and there are links to several charities we have adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. We know these folks uh, who run these charities, and the money goes where it should, so it's great. Uh, ben, what do we have for next week? So next week, November 1st, we'll tackle the modest topic of Quantum Night and whether any form of human consciousness can save the world. Uh, I won't be able to be here, unfortunately, but in my place will be legendary Timothy Green Beckley, uh, and he has kindly agreed to sit in for me. So that should be a fun time. Yeah, it's been a while since uh, Tim has been a guest co-host, but he's in our stable of guest co-hosts, and he's uh, a real living... He's been doing this longer than I have. Yeah, we, we kind of keep doing him in the bullpen. Years. <laughs> it was, what? We, we kind of keep him in the bullpen, so to speak. <laughs> we do. That's pretty great. So uh, we will look forward to that next week. So anyway, we'll leave you uh, today with a quote uh, that's a little different uh, from Genesis chapter 1. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So good luck. To this, to the lake monsters and scenes. Yeah. <laughs> God made you, Loch Ness monster. <laughs> oh, we still have a couple of seconds, but no, that's that's a. I, I like that it very specifically says the great creatures of the sea, and maybe that includes the Leviathan. Was yes, the, yeah. So 
You are Paul Eno. As far as I know. Yes, and I am Ben Eno. And thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey. We shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. And have a happy Halloween. And remember, there's a skeleton in all of us. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with 